Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12, or those of a sensitive nature, should turn off now. Hi and welcome to the Murder Tales podcast. In each episode we take a look at the, the crimes and the minds of serial killers and killers. I'm joined by the author and creator of the Murder Tales series of books, H.N. Lloyd. Or as we know, Lloydie. Even in all. Okay, so um, the plan was that we were going to do something on Sadie Harley in this episode, but because of what's happened today... We've had to change our schedule very, very slightly, so we're actually going to bring that up in the next episode instead. Lloyd, you can tell me what's going on. Well, there's been a, a rather major news story. Today it was announced that a man by the name of Colin Pitchfork has been released from prison, despite opposition from the family, the very unusual steps of the current Minister of Justice, Robert Buckland, uh, stepping in and taking the matter to the High Court to try and get the parole decision overturned. The court ruled that the Ministry of Justice didn't have any grounds to stop Pitchfork's release and as of today he is officially a free man. It's a seminal case in the annals of crime and I thought that that given what's happened today it's important that we should talk about and let the listeners know a little bit more about the case. So what can you tell me about Colin Pitchfork? What what was he convicted of? Pitchfork was convicted in 1987 of two murders and two rapes. His crimes happened uh, divided by a several year gap. Throughout that time he continued to commit sexual offences for which he didn't get caught. He freely admitted that he couldn't stop exposing himself to women and that since his teenage years, he'd exposed his genitals in it for sexual gratification over a thousand times. He was diagnosed with a psychosexual disorder, which that effectively means that it, it's a sexual disorder, which is is in the mind rather than it being physical. And this gave him a, a compunction to, to sexually attack women. He would argue that he couldn't control himself. Pitchfork uh, was, he grew up in little villages around the Leicestershire area. In 1981, he got married to a social worker, which, which is quite interesting considering, that, that, you know, his own sexual deviance, the fact that he would marry somebody in, in that line of work. He himself was, was a baker, depth cake decorator, and he was saving up money to open up his own business. He had two small children. And it seems that people who knew him thought that he was a um, an inveterate womanizer. He couldn't help himself try and chat up women. And people also said that he was quite moody and had a volatile temper. When it comes to his crimes, he was quite an opportunistic killer. His first victim was a 15-year-old girl called Linda Mann. On the 21st of November 1983... Colin was driving home with his infant child in the back of his car. The child was asleep, and when he saw Linda walking along the road, he just decided that he had to have sex with her. So he pulled over the car, left his child sleeping in the back of the car, and then he took 
leaned up an isolated footpath, which was known locally as the Black Pad, and he vaped her. Hang on. So, so what you're saying is he, this compulsion that he had to expose himself has developed into a compulsion to sexually assault somebody? Yes. And Pitchfork would later argue that his strangling of his victims was nothing to do with sexual gratification. It was simply to dispose of a, of a, of a weakness. But he would know that Linda would be able to lead back to him. She would recognise him. It was a small local community. So he killed her for expedience. The quite an extreme case, the fact that he had his own child in the back of the car. What would trigger somebody's compulsions to basically abandon their, their child in the car while they're asleep to go in and sexually assault somebody? Some people have very poor consequential thinking and poor impulse control. Some people simply see something, want it, and will take it, regardless of the circumstances. They've got nothing that can hold them back. If they've got some sort of psychosexual illness as well, that makes it even ten times worse. So it's all about cognitive deficits, which Pitchfork at the time of committing these offences was going through counselling because he'd already been convicted of indecent exposure. He'd been arrested for that, and he was ordered to undertake court-mandated counselling. And in such counselling, it would be very, very difficult to unpack the cognitive deficits and the psychosexual problems that are leading to the offending behaviour. It's a deep-rooted psychological illness. Is there likely to be some sort of trigger from childhood which would influence this? There can be in cases like this, uh, as we saw in the case of, of uh, Des Nilsson. He blamed his sexual issues on the death of his grandfather and seeing his grandfather in the coffin. Similarly, when we, we looked at uh, the Yorkshire Ripper, we saw that he had sexual problems throughout his life. So usually there are things in people's past which which can impact on on their behaviours and their sexual behaviours. It depends which which school of psychology you attribute to. Some say that there isn't a link between childhood trauma or childhood events and sexual desires. Other people say it's extremely important. There's no real consensus. I would say that I'm more of the school, that there is a link between events in people's past and sexual desires, their sexual kinks. So once again, we're back to this argument of nature or nurture. Exactly. I suppose if you, it, it must be a case-by-case basis, because obviously if you look at Ian Brady and Mara Henley, they make out that they had pretty secure upbringings, and it was their sexual exploits were something that developed when they met. Henley did, not so much Brady Brady, Brady came from a good family, but he was quite clearly psychologically unwell from an early childhood, went into criminality at a young age and then was in and out of Borstal and approved schools where he suffered severe discipline, some allegations of of sexual molestation at that time, which might have then coloured his later actions. And then, of course, he met Hindley, who was very malleable and very easy for him to manipulate and control, and who then started to egg him on. Similar to Fred and Rose West. Fred and Rose West, they were almost identical in that way to Hindley and Brady, where you've got one sexual deviant who meets a young girl, 
who he's able to manipulate and form into his own perfect sexual partner but then who bizarrely becomes almost worse than him because there is evidence now that the rose west committed the first murder when fred was in prison mm. so let's just come back to this case let's walk through the crime scenes and the timeline as well so he's seen linda man he's decided that he has to have her mm-hmm. and that's uh, in 1983 okay and you say he he takes her so i, I presume he physically attacks her drags her off somewhere yes he dragged her into into a secluded area as i said it it was called the black pad locally it was like a little lane a dark lane it was a shortcut to linda's home so perhaps she had gone up there herself in order to take the shortcut home and he's way later there it was a vicious and violent attack and when he committed his next murder a few years later they were so startlingly similar in what he did to his victims, they they almost instantly knew it was the same man because there was the same level of force, the same behaviours in the rape, the same behaviours in the strangulation. So he, he kind of, even though he, he uh, was almost a blitz killer, if you will, he still left an identifiable pattern of behaviour behind. Do you think this is an identifiable pattern that could have developed even more to become his mo in effect and he would have developed to become a serial killer if he hadn't been caught i think that he had the potential to maybe not a a, a serial killer killing frequently like peter sutcliffe or like stephen wright the Ipswich strangler he seems to be in a man more like btk by torture kill who could by this time the urge might not come on for him for several years at a time but when it came upon him, he instinctively acted upon it. I, I, I do think undoubtedly if he hadn't have been caught, he would have killed for a third time. And I suppose this is now the questions with him being released. Is he safe to be returned back to the community? Well, we'll come on to that later. Uh, and that is an important question. But we haven't discussed the, the, the second victim yet and how he got caught and why the case is so important uh, in, in the Allen's crime. From the first murder of Leslie Mount, there was a, a gap of several years before he attacked again. Yeah, well, after Leslie Mann, the police had very little to go on. This was a, a time before DNA. Effectively, the police, all they could do was, was categorise blood, tell if it was human or, or mammalian or animal, with blood samples left behind at the scene of uh, Linda's murder, they could tell her he was a secretor. Now, in Anyone who's listened to our Yorkshire Ripper podcast know that a secretor is somebody who leaves behind blood in their semen. In this case, the killer had left behind blood group A. Now, that meant it was an incredibly rare percentage of the population. It meant only 10% of the population could have been responsible for the murder. But that's still a huge part of the populace to, to try and track down, check. It would be almost impossible to do that. Even back in the early 1980s, you'd be looking at several hundred thousand people. So it would have been impossible. And effectively, the case went cold. That isn't until 31st of July in 1986, when 15-year-old Dawn Ashworth failed to come home after visiting a friend. She was found the next day in a local secluded lane called £10 Lane. Like Linda, she had been raped and she had been strangled. 
when the police saw her body, almost instantly then they, they linked it to the murder that had occurred a few years before. When you say they automatically linked it, do we know from some of the cases we've discussed previously? It's not very obvious at the time to actually link murders together. Was it a particular department of the CID who were covering this case? Yeah, it was the same area. It was the, the same for all of police officers. So those officers had worked on the previous case. So when they saw this body and they saw the injuries to the body and they saw the way the body had been left, it, it didn't take them very long to kind of conclude this is the same man killing again after all this time. Unfortunately, at this point, the police started to go down the wrong track and they started to focus all of their attention on a young man with learning difficulties by the name of Richard Buckland. They took him in and they started to pressurise him and eventually he confessed to Dawn's murder. We've got echoes here of of Stephen Gitchko. Exactly. Uh, uh, It's almost identical to what they did to Gitchko. And undoubtedly, Buckland would have gone to prison. And uh, one of the officers who, who worked on the case said they have no doubts that Buckland would have gone to prison for a very, very long time if it wasn't for a man called Alex Jeffries, now Sir Alex Jeffries. Just before we move on to Alex Jeffries, I take it at the time, police intelligence, and in effect, when you're profiling a killer, assume that anybody with learned difficulties is more likely to be a suspect. I take issue with the, the saying profiling there because there wasn't such a thing as profiling back well, then. I'm using, I'm using a modern phrase. Mm. Coppering back then was effectively going out, stomping the, 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 the floor, doing house house inquiries, having local knowledge and having a list of people effectively that you don't like. And you would pull in the local sex offenders and the local weirdos and you would see which of them had alibis. And if any of those people didn't have alibis or an alibi you didn't like, you would pressurise them. And as somebody with learning difficulties no doubt mr buckland was seen as a local weirdo and people probably mistrusted him for that unfortunately and he was simply probably on the places we don't like you list so he was pulled in put in a room and pressure was put on him to the point where he's confessed to a murder he hasn't committed what kind of support would he have had absolutely none back then there was no legal requirement for somebody with learning difficulties to have an appropriate adult or legal uh, questioning the police could hold you for as long as they wanted they could do whatever they wanted they could hit you they could use methods that today we would be horrified by in order to get confessions it wasn't yeah one of the one of the known uh, methods used by the Yorkshire police was for them to put plastic bags over suspect's heads and hold it there till he could hardly breathe and then force and sign a confession. It was known in some forces just to get the a weapon that was similar to what had been used and forcibly put the suspect's dabs on the hammer and then say, right, we've got the weapon now. These tricks were, were well known to be used, keeping suspects up for long long hours till they were sleep deprived and they didn't know what they were signing it it, there's a case uh timothy evans we we no doubt we'll talk about this case in in the future because it's again it's another really important case in 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 criminal history uh in the british criminal justice system he was a man who uh convicted of his wife and daughter's murder and when you look at the confessions that he signed 
you can quite clearly see that they have not been written by an illiterate man and that they are full of coppering slang of police jargon that Evans wouldn't have known. So it's quite clear looking at those confessions, Evans hasn't written those confessions. Mm. They've been written for him and then he has been forced to sign them. And then lo and behold, a few years later, after Evans had been hung, it turned out that he was living in the same apartment building as Britain's worst post-war serial killer. And it's now it's now widely believed by all but a small number of, of, of consenters that Chris, John Reginald Halley Christie killed Evans's wife and daughter. That's OK. We'll definitely go on to that another time. Let's move on from where we were. So the police have arrested Richard Buckland and... He, as you described, he would have gone down the route of Stephen Kitchko, where he would have been tried and sentenced to potentially life imprisonment. What basically saved him from being incarcerated? Well, at the time, there was a chap from Leicester University called Alex Jeffries, who was working with uh, two gentlemen by the name of Peter Gill and David Warrett from the police forensics. And they were developing new forensic tools that the police could possibly utilize to help in in the detection of crime and one of the things that they developed was something that they termed dna fingerprinting which was effectively taking blood or semen found at the scene of a crime and extracting the dna from that which gives you a unique profile of whoever has deposited that sample with almost 100% accuracy. When I say 100, it's usually 99.9999 to the point where they can say there's only one in a billion or one in two billion chance that you didn't commit this offence. So this was was cutting edge, brand new technology had never been used. When the... When the samples from Dawn Ashworth's murder came to the lab, Professor Jeffries decided, let's try it on this. We've got a murder here. This is an excellent opportunity to try this new science out. Can we get a DNA profile of the killer? And he got one better than that. Not only was he able to get a DNA profile of Dawn's killer, he was able to get a DNA profile of Linda's killer, and they were 100% match. So the police knew definitively that the same person had called, killed Dawn and Linda. Importantly, when they compared that DNA profile to Richard Buckland's, it was a complete mismatch. He was innocent and the police could see he was innocent using the science. And unlike in previous cases, like the Stefan Kisco case, the police this time didn't try and hide that evidence they didn't try and suppress it and make it go away they admitted they made a mistake and they let mr buckland go we've now got buckland who's been released how did he catch colin pitchfork well the police go out on a limb here they decide let's start mass testing let's get all the males in the local area and get a dna sample a mass test because the killer must be in this local community. So 5,500 men gave blood and saliva samples and it was they were all tested and the killer wasn't amongst that sample. So the police were completely bamboozled. Mm. They thought the science was wrong, the science didn't work because they knew the killer had to come from that community. The police were effectively at a dead end. They were kind of resigning themselves to the fact that this is going to be a case that isn't going to be solved. 
and that DNA was going to be pointless and, and, you know, a scientific dead end, if you will. So how was Pitchfork missed? Well, Pitchfork was missed because he had told one of his colleagues at the bakery that he was scared that the police were going to try and set him up because he had a conviction for indecent exposure. And obviously at the time, there was a lot of things in the press about people being set up for crimes they hadn't committed. It was the time of the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four, a case I've just talked about before, the Christian Evans case was in the press a lot at the time. So you've got a lot of talk of miscarriages of justice in the press. He gives this sob story to his friend Ian Kelly. Ian Kelly goes along and he gives the DNA sample on behalf of Colin Pitchfork. A couple of weeks later, Ian Kelly's in the pub, drunkenly telling his friends that his sample's going to be in there twice and it'll probably confuse the police. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, I gave a sample in for my mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's, police don't like him. They, you know, they were going to set him up. Or, so I, I helped him out and I gave my sample in twice. A lady overhears this and she's utterly disgusted by what she hears. And she goes directly to the police and says, I've overheard two people talking in the pub saying that one of them has given DNA sample on behalf of a man called Colin Pitchfork. Police go through the records, find Pitchfork's details, go back to him and they ask him to submit a second sample. And when that's tested, lo and behold, isn't it a 100% match for the killer? Obviously, with DNA profiling being such a new instrument for the police, Pitchfork initially deny committing the, the murders. Pitchfork initially did deny. Then when it became completely undeniable that he'd committed the offences and the science was explained to him, he said, well, I did one, but not the other. Then he started to say, well, I might have raped them, but I didn't kill them. And then eventually, when he got to the trial, he pled guilty to all of the offences and it led to Colin Pitchfork being the first man convicted in the world on DNA evidence. And he was told by the judge when he was sentenced that he should expect to serve the rest of his life in prison. However, today, Colin Pitchfork, after 33 years, was released from prison. Why has Colin Pitchfork been released? A number of reasons. He was given a, a minimum 33-year tariff, which was then reduced to 30 years. That means he was over that minimum cut-off point of his sentence. So he was eligible to go before a parole board, which he duly did. And the parole board have assessed Mr Pitchfork, and they have deemed he no longer poses a threat to society, and it was safe to release him. Now, these decisions are not made willy-nilly. They're not taken lightly. A lot of thought, consideration and risk assessments goes into these decisions. He won't just be released uh, and be free to wander around. He will be under heavy licensing conditions. Now, what that means is when he comes out of prison, he will have to agree to certain terms being given to him. They will no doubt be that he has to reside at a certain address. And if he's going to stay away from that address for more than one night, he has to tell the police or his probation officer where he's going to be. He will no doubt, probably for the first short period, be uh, subjected to a home detention curfew or a tag, if you will, to make sure that he, he's staying in within certain hours. That is sometimes something that, that, that they are subjected to when people are released from prison. He might not be able to go to certain areas 
you might not be able to contact certain people. And all these factors are in it to protect the general public as a whole and the victims' families. So there will be tough and stringent license convictions there, constraining pitchfork and protecting the public. I know in the media there's a, there's always a, a concern that he's going to be related back into his old community. Is that likely to happen in this case? If he has familial ties in that area and those familial ties wish to have him back, then yes, he could be. But in those circumstances, I would imagine he would be told, right, you cannot go down X, Y, Z streets in that in that town because the victim's family live there. The problem is with that, people don't just stick to their own streets, do they? Well, they don't. And there is there is always the risk that, that, that he could bump into them. He would no doubt be told or stay X amount of distance. So if he sees them coming down the street, you know, he has to turn away and walk away or go down a side street to avoid them. So it, the impetus would be on him to make sure that he can stick to whatever conditions he has been given. But then one thing that is at risk is the is the concern of violent attacks against him. Mm, so there is, and that, that's why I'm concerned the fact that there has been today published in the paper a very recent picture of Mr Pitchfork when he was out on day release. Part of, of his period of getting used to being released from prison after such a large sentence he was moved to an open prison prior to his release and he was allowed out on day release to reacclimatize to life in, uh, in public and a picture was taken of him by a tabloid journalist and that today was published in the paper so straight away his animosity has been ruined there now i know there are those who would argue that he shouldn't have anonymity uh because of what he's done and the crimes he has committed and whilst i can see those arguments and i, I sympathize with those arguments there has to be a duty of care to protect mr pitchfork as well as a human being so i don't feel as though we're going to hear the last of this at the moment no i don't think we will there, there will still be no doubt moral uproar and rage in the uh, tabloid presses over the next few days i noticed that the daily mail is already declaring him to be a monster and then he should never have been released no doubt it will be used as an attack upon the parole board process which whenever they make contentious decisions like this come under attack from from, from elements of the press which are only you know, too willing to, to attack the justice system whenever they can. So yeah, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But as it stands, the highest court in the land has told the Justice Secretary that, that there was nothing that they could do to stop his release because he's been deemed no longer a threat to society. OK, Lloydie, thank you very much. That has been Murder Tales podcast for this episode. If you have any concerns, questions or feedback, please get in contact with us by going to our Twitter page, which is at murder tales pod or you can get in contact with lloydie directly by going to uh hn lloyd one and we will definitely be back next week looking into the case of sadie harley if you enjoyed the show please go onto itunes and leave us a lovely five star review and even better click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts the murder tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by hn lloyd 
if you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Britton. It was created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics Podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.